you so much. I hope we've all decided to make Jesus our choice. Amen? Amen. If you're just joining us here today, which uh, might be several of you, I, I sometimes I'll be honest with you, I, I scan the congregation to see who are, what members are here, who should I check on, and do we have any visitors here today? And I was trying to look for, and I can't, half your faces, I don't know. We have a whole lot of visitors here today. Welcome, every one of you. Glad to have you. Uh, don't, don't make it just an occasion. You can come on by regularly. We'll be happy to have you whenever, but uh, welcome. Uh, glad you're here with us. We've been going through a study of the book of Revelation. We've been going just chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. And of course, the book of Revelation is a very large book, and it's a very, uh, it's a very difficult book sometimes to read through. And so we could spend a lot of time getting into each little detail, but our goal is not to get every word and every idea, but to get the broad picture of what the book of Revelation is talking about. And what we see, if when we open up the book of Revelation, in fact, the very first words of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it tells us what the book is all about. It says, the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of a beast or of Satan or of all kinds of terrible, horrible things. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the center. He's the circumference. He's all in the book of Revelation. But it goes on in verse 1 to say, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Okay, So from the author's perspective, the book of Revelation contains things that must happen still to come, or future events. We call that prophecy. It's a book of prophecy, and it reveals to us Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Revelation, if you notice, and it should be this way in your Bible, if you have a Bible that doesn't have Revelation at the end of the Bible, then something's wrong, but... In most common Bibles, and believe all of them, has the book of Revelation right there at the very end of the Bible. And it assumes that you've read all the Bible that comes before it. There's a lot of references to previous things, things from the Old Testament or things earlier in the New Testament, things that you need to be familiar with to understand the book of Revelation. It assumes that you've read the rest of the Scripture. And so some of the things that might be confusing if they were taken away from the context, if they were taken out of its original environment, make more sense when you place it right in Scripture and let the Bible be its own interpreter. Let the Scripture unfold itself. And so far what we've seen in the book of Revelation, again, today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12, but leading up to that we have seen several repeated sequences of history chronological history outlined that start in the time of the prophet. Of course, the prophet in this instance is the name of John. Starts in the time of John, and it goes all the way through history until the coming of Jesus. Okay, Starts in John and goes to the coming of Jesus. You see a sequence of seven churches right in the beginning, and each one represents a period of time from the time of John until the coming of Jesus. You see a sequence of seven seals. But it goes one, two, three, four, five, six seals, and then right before it gets to the seventh seal, right with the coming of Jesus, there's an interruption for just a moment, and it describes to us in Revelation chapter 7 the 144,000, those who are faithful to Jesus and will be alive when he returns. Then you have the sequence of the seven trumpets, and again we go one, two, three, four, five, six, and it lists them out. But before we get to the sounding of the seventh trumpet, there's a pause. And we find Revelation chapter 10 where John is told to eat a little book of Bible prophecy that had come before the book of Revelation, which is, of course, the prophecies, the time prophecies 
of Daniel, specifically those that end at that time in earth's history. And we understand from that that there was a time when people were going to pick up towards the end of earth's history, they were going to pick up the Bible, and they are going to start to understand Bible prophecy and get so excited about it, it would seem sweet in their mouth, and they would start proclaiming the truth that they found there, and that Jesus is coming again, which he is coming again, but Jesus did a work first. Before he's coming again, he moves in the heavenly sanctuary from the holy place to the most holy place to begin his work of judgment. And that's what we see described in Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 11 gave us the standard that we're going to be judged in in that judgment, the word of God. And it gives us the history of the Bible from the time of John again until the second coming of Jesus, how there would be a time of persecution where the Bible message was still good out, but it would be clothed in sackcloth and it would be difficult, a time of persecution. But after that, it would rise to prominence again. And now we find ourselves, Revelation chapter 12. By the way, if you'd like to get any of the previous sermons that have gone with it, we can make recordings. Some are already available out on our resource desk, or you can visit our church website at muskegonsda.org, and all of those sermons are online, ready to listen to. So if you can catch us up to where we are now. But today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12, and it paints a fascinating picture of the history of the church leading up to the second coming of Jesus. But before we get started in any study, what do we need to do first? Have a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the awesome privilege of studying your word. And Lord, you've promised that the same Holy Spirit who inspired its writing will inspire our understanding. So Lord, we ask today that man's words will not be heard, but the word of God will be heard and that Jesus himself will be our teacher through his Holy Spirit representative. Lord, speak to us now, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's dive right into Revelation chapter 12 as we pick up our sermon series about the book of Revelation. He says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. So he's having this vision experience, and he looks up and he sees in the skies, he sees in heaven a great sign. And what does that sign look like? It looks like a what? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So we'll pause right there and try to understand what the book is telling us. Now, the book of Revelation is a book of symbolism. There are things that represent other things. Now, I don't think that he looked up in the sky and there was a giant woman standing on the sun. No. But this represents something that is real. It's a symbol that represents a real thing. And one of the handy keys is, in Bible prophecy, a woman always represents the church. The church is always represented by a woman. You'll notice that even Jesus would call his Old Testament church and the New Testament church too. He would refer to it as a woman. It's referred to as a bride. It's referred to as, as, as a beautiful woman. And now, later on in the book of Revelation, you're going to find another description of a woman that's not so beautiful. It's in fact corrupt, but it's just the church in a corrupt state, right? But the woman always represents the church. And here the church is seen clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now again, the book of Revelation assumes that you've read all the other books that lead up to Revelation. By the time you get to Revelation, you're at book number 66. There are 65 books before this that have all kinds of language and imagery that's already been used, right? 
So if you didn't know that, you would say, well, what in the world could the stars and the sun and the moon, what could that represent? And then you'd say, well, I think, and you start making things up. But the handy thing, the Bible has already decoded these mysteries for us. This is a picture of the church at a certain point in time. Now, how do we know that? Well, we look at the symbols that are employed. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. If you've been a student of Scripture, those symbols would probably come to your mind. I've seen that before. Where do we see that before? We go all the way to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, we see this same description given, but here it's referring to a specific group of people. Now, God's people, his church on the earth in the Old Testament, were called the children of whom? Israel, the children of Israel. But Israel was not his first name. Israel was the name his name was changed to. Before he was Israel, the gentleman named Israel was actually named Jacob, right? So Jacob had 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel, and this is where this takes us back to. This language in Revelation 12 takes us all the way back to the beginning of God's people in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 37, we'll start with verse 9, and to give you a little bit of context, here one of Jacob's sons by the name of Joseph was a very good boy, very young and very, I would have to say, naive in that he told his brothers about these dreams he was having, and the first time he told his brothers about the dreams he was having, they did not like the dreams, and they didn't like him for telling him the dreams. So you would think if he had a second dream, he would learn to just kind of, you know, keep it to himself. But look what happens in verse 9 of Genesis 37. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his whom? Brothers. Guess what? I've had another dream. I don't know what he was expecting, but it didn't turn out well the first time. And said, look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time, and see if you recognize the language, the symbols. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, you might pause and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. In Revelation 12, it was the sun, the moon, and 12 stars. Here, it's only 11 stars. Well, let's think about that logically. Who would the 12th star be? Well, well, you're already getting ahead, but you're getting good at this decoding Bible prophecy. But let's take a look. Verse 10. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? And then he interprets what the symbols mean. Shall your, what's that first word? Mother and I and your whom? Brothers indeed come down to bow bow down to the earth before you. So if there are 11 stars, he, Joseph, is the 12th star, being the brother that all the other brothers would bow down to. So you have the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars representing the family of Jacob or the nation of Israel, right? So we go back to Revelation chapter 12. We know now that we're talking about a church, and specifically the Old Testament church, because we have that symbolism from the beginnings of the church history, but also there's another good reason as to why this is the church before Jesus came on the scene. was found right there in verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. As we're going to see in just a few moments, that child was Jesus Christ. By the way, this is also symbolism that has been used all throughout the Old Testament. 
Again, leave your finger in Revelation chapter 12. This time, go back to the book of Genesis. Now go to Genesis chapter 3. You will see this idea of a woman giving birth to a child, and that child would be a danger and a threat to the kingdom of Satan. Revelation chapter 3, when the serpent was speaking to Eve and tempted her and and deceived her into eating the forbidden fruit, and she gives some to her husband who is with her. They stand before God, and he starts explaining what's going to happen now, and he curses the serpent. And in his dialogue to the serpent, notice what the Lord God says. Genesis chapter 3, and go to verse 15. The Lord says to this serpent, and I will put enmity, that is tension and hatred and discord, enmity between you and whom? The woman. And between your seed and her seed. And notice that seed in your Bible should have a capital S. It's referring to Jesus who is coming. And what's that seed going to do? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it doesn't take too much rocket science to figure out which is a worse injury, a head injury or a foot injury. Obviously, the head injury And some versions even translate that, I believe, correctly to crush your head. It's going to be a mortal wound. It's not just going to be a glancing blow. This child who's coming from the woman is going to be such a threat, he's going to end you. Now, in so doing, you're going to get a wound on him, but the wound on you is going to be much greater. Yours will end in death. And so the serpent, this this Satan we're going to see right in Revelation chapter 12, from the very beginning of Scripture has been looking for this coming child, this seed who is going to strike his head. So we go back to Revelation chapter 12. Just unfolding, letting the Bible be its own interpreter, we start to get the picture of what's being described here in Revelation chapter 12. We have the church in the Old Testament, and we can tell for two reasons. Number one, it uses the language of the children of Jacob. Then in verse two, it says that she's with child, but has she given birth to the child yet? No, this is before he comes, but getting closer and closer to his coming. That be, uh, verse 2, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So it hasn't happened, but it's getting close. The stage is getting set. So we go to verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. So up until this point, he was just watching the woman and the sun, the moon, the stars, and he was looking at the pregnancy, and she can tell that the contractions are coming and is about to give birth. But then as the birth moment is coming closer, he looks in the heavens and there's another sign appears. Behold, a great fiery red, what's that word? First time it's been used in the book of Revelation. We're introduced to this character, this being called this dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. This also is language from a previous prophecy. You can find that in Daniel chapter 7. But here this dragon is introduced, and it describes what he looks like. And it says in verse 4, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, we'll pause right here as it describes this dragon. Again, just like there wasn't an actual giant woman standing on the moon, clothed with the sun, and had stars on her head, but it represents something true on earth, the church. Here we have a dragon whose tail sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven. What could this possibly mean? Well, the handy thing about this is, right inside the same chapter, it gives us the explanation of to who the dragon is. Just skip down to verse 9. 
We'll be coming back to it in a moment. For right now, skip ahead to verse 9, and it tells us who this dragon is. Verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out. And again, we'll come back to that casting out. What is that talking about? We'll get it in just a minute. But for right now, keep this in mind. The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. Now pause right there. As soon as you hear serpent of old in the Bible, what story do you go back to? Genesis, where we just read about the serpent speaking to the woman, right, in this whole thing. That serpent of old, and what else do we call him? Called the devil, and who? Makes no, no, no ambiguity at all whatsoever as to who this dragon is. The power we're talking about is Satan himself, who deceives the whole world. And again, it takes you back to the Garden of Eden. Right? He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, pause right there. And he wasn't just cast out by himself. Who also came with him? His angels. Well, if we go back to verse 4, it said, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them where? To the earth. Is it possible that stars are a symbol for angels in Bible prophecy? Well, it's not only possible, it's actually true. And Jesus himself tells us so. Leave your finger in Revelation 12 and go back to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, again, we're just letting the Bible unfold and explain all these symbols for us so we don't have to guess. Revelation chapter 1, not only is it about Jesus, but it's actually given by Jesus, this prophecy that John was having. And Jesus himself speaks, And it says there in verse 20, where Jesus explains what some of these symbols mean. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. He tells John, The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, are this. The seven stars are the what? Angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So in that first chapter of Revelation, Jesus was seen by John as walking among the seven lampstands and holding in his hand seven stars. And he didn't know what it meant, so Jesus says, let me explain it to you. These seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, and an angel is another word for a messenger sent by God, an angel messenger, and he said the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. So the Bible tells us what the symbols mean. So we go and apply this now back to Revelation chapter 12. And we start putting the pieces together. Let's go to verse 3 again. Again, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great fiery red dragon, which we know now is Satan, was standing there. And it describes him in verse 4. His tail drew a third of the angels of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, in what position is he in relative to the woman? Because so far, you've just seen a picture of the woman. And her condition of standing on the moon and being about to give birth to a child, right? And then he sees another sign, this dragon, and how those two relate? Well, verse 4 continues. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to throw a party. Is that what it says? To have a child? Of course not. What's he standing there to do? According to Scripture, to devour the child as soon as it was born. So now these two signs come together and he sees, aha, this woman is standing there about to give birth and now we see 
this dragon who apparently is quite upset about this child who's going to be born. Well, no surprise, we went back to Genesis chapter 3 and see why is he so upset about this child? It's going to kill him, right? So he says, you know, in order to get, what I need to do is attack it first. Now think about this. When Jesus was born, when Jesus was born, Satan didn't wait 30 years till he began his ministry to start picking on Jesus. In fact, the moment Jesus was born, there was a death decree on his head, right? Right? In fact, the Lord had to send an angel and tell Joseph, take your, children, take your baby down to Egypt and come back out at a certain time. I had to guide them around. But the entirety of Jesus' life, from the moment of his birth, was under the gun from Satan, from this fiery red dragon, trying to take out Jesus before he accomplished his mission. Because if Jesus' mission was accomplished, Satan knows, I'm done. So he's going after this, this child. And notice here, in the chapter 12, his original concern is not necessarily with the church, with the woman. It's with the child the woman would bring forth. Now, if he can get the woman to go off course and not have the child to start with, that would be great with him too, right? But his main objective is getting the child. But now look at verse 5. What happens with that child? She bore a male child, and again, that's child with a capital C. This is a reference to Jesus Christ, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. By the way, right there in verse 5 is the entire description of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven in two sentences, in one verse. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So Satan's plan to get him at birth did not work. By the way, it failed also when he tried to get him when his ministry started. It failed even at the moment of the cross. Every moment he was trying to chase Jesus and get him down, but this child had a very brief ministry, but boy, was it effective. And as soon as he comes out, it's it's almost like one of those things where you see him coming like this, the dragon's trying to get him, and Jesus gips out of his grasp, goes up to heaven, And Satan's primary target, Jesus Christ, has escaped his plans. Now, this is a very big deal. Now, notice, however, that Revelation chapter 12 does not focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. It's not a detailed history of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry is central, and his resurrection into heaven and ascension into heaven is central. But the prominent features are the woman... And the dragon, this is not just a history of Jesus Christ, it's a history of Jesus' people on the earth, the church. So now, Jesus has been born, his mission is successful, he returns up to his Father in heaven, and what does it say in verse 6? Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now why is the woman running away? He wasn't after the woman, he was after Jesus, right? But did he get Jesus? No. So does he just give up and say, I guess I'm done? No, no. Verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. And again, if you were the, it's the first time you've ever read Revelation chapter 12, you could say, well, what in the world does 1,260 days mean? But in all the scriptures that go before it, specifically in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, this particular time reference is mentioned repeatedly. 
It means 1,260 literal years of persecution that the church would endure after Jesus completed mission on the earth. After he had returned to heaven, the church was going to go through a time of persecution for 1,260 years. But apparently the Lord would take care of her, but the dragon is not happy. Which would lend us pause at this point to ask this simple question. Again, as this is the first time we're introduced to this dragon, why is he so mad? What is the deal? And you can say, well, obviously it, he goes back to the garden, right? Well, is there something that happened even before the garden? That Why was he even trying to lead people away from God to start with? What was the deal? What's the background story of this angry red dragon? Well, that's where verse 7 starts, and it gives us the background story of this dragon and his war against this child. It tells us in verse 7, and war broke out. Where did it break out? In heaven. Apparently there was a war in heaven before this earth even got going. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So apparently this was a war between the dragon and his angels and Michael opposing him and his angels. There was a war in heaven. Verse 8, but they did not, what? Prevail. What's another word for prevail? Win. So if they did not win, that means they did lose. There was a war in heaven, and the dragon has already lost that war. And notice what it says here now. What happened because of it? But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. They were removed from heaven. Their place was taken away. Verse 9, we've already read it, but now it makes sense in this context. So the great dragon was cast out. Now we know, cast out from where? Heaven. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So now when we go back and we read Revelation chapter 3 and we see that serpent in the tree, we know the backstory of why he's so upset. Because he's already lost against this guy once. And now he wants to deceive this world, get them allied on his side, and take on Jesus instead of in heaven, now on earth. They were cast out with him. Now look at verse 10. By the way, I find it fascinating that when Satan first rebelled in heaven, and when that war was fought, and when Satan and his angels lost that war, they didn't lose their life, they just simply lost their place in heaven. They were cast out instead of being blotted out of existence. Okay, they were cast to the earth. And now the war that had been in heaven is now raging on the earth. But it says here now in verse 10, then, so after he's been cast out, it then says, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And if you were to just quickly read through that, you'd say, oh, well, verse 10 is simply repeating what we just saw in verses 7 through 9 about the war in heaven and they were cast out. So it's just saying it again. But I don't believe that that's the truth. And let me tell you why. Because look at the testimony that Jesus gives in John chapter 12. Leave your finger in Revelation 12. 
and go back to the Gospel of John, written by the same individual as who wrote the book of Revelation, John. John chapter 12, and look at the words of Jesus as he approached the cross of Calvary in this time of persecution. John chapter 12, and go down to verse 31. As Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry and he knows that his time is short, notice what he says. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be, what's that say? Cast out. Will be cast out. I thought he had been cast out long before the earth was even... Is it possible that the destruction of Satan and his rebellion happens in multiple steps? Originally, the war was fought in heaven, and he was lost his place. He was geographically, he was cast out of the courts of heaven. But at the cross, there was a second casting out of Satan. How do I know we're talking about the cross here, by the way? Just keep reading John chapter 12. Look at verse 32 now. And Jesus himself says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And you could say, well, still, how do we know he's talking about his death on the cross? Keep reading. Look at verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So apparently at the cross of Jesus, Satan was cast out again. Somehow. Now, He was already cast out of the courts of heaven. But what you find out at the cross of Christ, and there's a whole sermon series that goes with this, but at the cross of Christ, those who watched that war in heaven had heard God say the truth about himself, I am love, I would give anything, I would sacrifice myself for you if I had to. Versus the lies that Satan was telling. Jesus, by the way, says he's a liar and the father of it. He's a murderer from the beginning, but he had that in his heart. He's been lying about God, saying, no, 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 you are not love, you are not kind. In fact, you're actually the opposite of that. I, on the other hand, offer you freedom. Interestingly, by the way, in Revelation 12 and verse 7, the word war that's employed there is the word polemos, which is where we get our English word polemic, which is an argument. It's a verbal battle. It's a battle of ideas. It's a war of words between Christ and his adversary, the dragon or Satan. And when it was just a war of words, you could hear Christ saying, no, 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 this is right. And Satan saying, no, 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 this is right. And at some point, if someone, by the way, this is a handy tip for life. If someone ever calls you a liar, you know what you can't do? You can't come back with, no, I'm not. Why not? Think about it logically. That's exactly what a liar would say. (laughs) A liar lies. So the comeback to that would be, see, there you go, lying again. And you could say it as much, no, 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 trust me, I'm not a liar. That's exactly what a liar would say. At some point, the war of words has to go beyond just words. And when Jesus came and died on the cross of Calvary, It was more than words. When Jesus Christ 
laid down his life. The entire universe, for the very first time, saw the words of God lived out in the life of Christ. And by the way, they saw the true character of his enemy revealed for the very first time. Christ, on one hand, would give everything where Satan would take everything, even the life of God, if it were possible. And when the universe saw that, for the second time, they're like, in fact, we're done. We're not listening anymore. He was cast out. But notice there's a third step. Go back to Revelation 12 now. So in verses 7 through 9, you have the original war in heaven when he lost his place. From, he was cast from the courts of heaven. Verse 10, he was cast out of the sympathies of heavenly beings. They're done with him. They see the difference between Christ and his enemy. And now in verse 11, it says, And they, and speaking of they, that's the, the brethren who have been accused by him from verse 10, but in verse 11, And they overcame him. Now, not only did Christ win, but those who claim to be Christ start overcoming Satan in Jesus' name. And you realize, uh-oh, my influence is getting even smaller and smaller and smaller. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Notice they don't come overcome in their own strength, but they plead the blood of the Lamb in their behalf. And they begin overcoming Satan. And his influence shrinks. And they did not love their lives to the death. Boy, who else did not love his life to the death? Was it not Jesus Christ? They're overcoming Satan and becoming more and more like Jesus. And he sees his influence. It's whittling down less and less and less. Finally, we get to verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. He is exceedingly upset now. Why? Because he knows. What does he know for a certainty? That he has a short time. He knows that the clock is running out on him and his administration. He used to have universal influence, but he was cast from the courts of heaven. And then the onlooking universe was still unsure about these. And then they saw the cross and he was cast out again. And now those who look to Jesus for their salvation by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony begin to overcome the devil. His influence is even smaller. And he looks down the chain of history and he knows at this rate, my time is almost up. And notice how he reacts to that. He doesn't just get self-pity and wallow in his own sorrow. What does it say? For the devil has come down to you, O earth, and the inhabitants of the sea. The devil has come down to you having great what? Wrath. He's very, very angry. Which now we pick back up on our story of the woman and this dragon. Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he did what? What's that next word? Persecuted whom? The woman. The church. Who gave birth to the male child. By the way, is this the Old Testament church or now, or is this the New Testament church? It's the New Testament church. How do we know? Because she's given birth to the child, right? The child has been born, had his ministry, and gone up to heaven. And now since he can't get Jesus, he goes after the church that claims his name. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. 
But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, which had already been mentioned in Revelation 12, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Which if we had the further time to study this out, we could find that time, times, and half a time, or 42 months as we saw it in Revelation 11, or, or 1,260 days, all of those with the ta- same time span of 1,260 years of persecution. She was persecuted, but the Lord had guided her and given her nourishment for that time. And it says here, the dragon was not happy, verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that it might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And then we get to the very last verse. We've almost read an entire chapter in the book of Revelation now. But look at Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with whom? The woman. So apparently he tries persecuting her for 1,260 years, and to some degree he has been successful, but there is this one last vestige of faithfulness that he just can't shake. And he is not pleased In fact, he is enraged. I like the way the King James Version says that the dragon was wroth. You get the picture of like almost foaming at the mouth, just angry. So you can understand, at the very beginning, he lost the war and was cast out, and that made him angry. But he said, that's right, I'm going to go after Jesus when he comes here. And he's going after the male child, and he lost there as well. Okay, then I'm going to go after his followers, and... He's losing there as well. And now at the end of time, there's this one last group on earth who will not bend the knee, who will not give in. In fact, it describes him here. He went off to make the war with the rest of her offspring. Apparently some of the offspring had fallen away. He's been victorious over some. Some has given in. But there's this one last group who keep the commandments of whom? God. Which, by the way, that's how you show God that you love him, is you keep the commandments. Jesus himself said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. He's not looking for lip service. He's looking for life service. And there's this one group who don't just claim his name, but they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. They do not love their lives to the dead. They're not afraid of all the things that Satan... They have no fear because they're looking at Jesus and they understand that greater is he that is in them than is he that is in the world. And the dragon is extraordinarily angry. He's enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's where the chapter ends, friends. It gives us an overview, a snapshot of the history of the church from the Old Testament time through the ministry of Jesus, the time of persecution that would come after Jesus, and then at the very last segment of time, there's this one faithful group who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And apparently some of the other offspring have fallen away. Some of the other offspring have been overcome. And apparently the implying is they do not keep the commandments of God or have the testimony of Jesus. So by the way, friends, if you're looking for a church to join, very simple. The first thing you look for, do they say they love Jesus? Every church says they love Jesus. But do they actually keep the commandments of God?
Apparently there's going to be one group who loves Jesus enough to not just say it, but to live it. Who, if they love him, they keep his commandments and they have this testimony of Jesus, which will be a burden of a study at a later time. But there's this concept out there that the dragon is angry. He knows that his time is short. He knows that his influence is winding down. And he's trying to get as much of the world on his side as possible. Yet there's this one group who just will not relent, will not give up, will not bow the knee. They continue to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony. I don't know about you, friends, but I want to be part of that group. As I look through this flow of history, we're not in the Old Testament times, praise the Lord. We're not looking forward to the first coming of Jesus. It's already happened. And I praise the Lord that Jesus did come and that he was successful and he did go back up to God and his throne and he's ministering on our behalf in heaven right now. And I'm glad that that time of 1,260 years of persecution has already occurred. We're already past that. We are living in that Revelation 12, verse 17 time. And the question for you and for me, there is going to be a people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. The question I have for you today, are you going to be one of them? Are we going to be that commandment-keeping people who whatever the world says doesn't matter, we want to know what the Word says. Whatever God's Word says, we go with it because we love Jesus enough to keep His commandments. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.